2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. When people come to me and ask me how they can make a website for their new project or their new business, I encourage them not to uh, because you'll get a better looking website if you do it with Squarespace. They've got great templates. They've got great customer support. It comes with analytics cooked in. So pretty much with a few clicks, you've got something presentable, beautiful, and unique. So if you've been dreaming of starting that Nest project, get it going today with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com. And when you're ready to launch, if you put in the offer code LONGFORM, you'll get 10% off a website or domain, and you'll be supporting the show. Hey, here's that show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, who are uh, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Nice to see you guys. Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week on the show. But before we get there, I just want to say congratulations to you guys. We hit our five-year anniversary of doing oh, the yeah. show. Five, we just had our five-year anniversary party. We invited every single person who's been on the show, except a few of you whose emails have changed, sorry, <laughs> uh, to come have a party with us. It was really fun. I think actually th- this week's guest was at the party, right? She was. Yeah. Vanessa Gregoriadis, back on the show. She was on a couple years ago, Aaron. We uh, went to like a journalism. Oh conference. yeah, it was, a, it was at Irvine. I was think it? so. I don't remember. It was, it was when we were on that uh, that conference circuit. Yeah. But Vanessa, if you don't know Vanessa's work, you should go back and listen to that. She has been writing uh, mostly about celebrity for Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, New York Times Magazine, all kinds of places. Uh, but she just wrote her first book. It is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. It's about sexual assault on campuses. Uh, so we talked about the book. We talked about uh, reporting it. It's a controversial book. It's in the uh, news. It's been in the news. Part of the reason it's been in the news is uh, it was reviewed by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times. Uh, there were some factual errors in the review. Vanessa uh, went public with her displeasure about the factual errors. Michelle Goldberg wrote back. It was covered elsewhere. Uh, it was a thing. So we talked about that experience sort of from Vanessa's vantage point. Fascinating. This is not a time where I will do a wacky MailChimp segue, but the show is brought to you by MailChimp. Uh, they made the, they made our party possible, True. and they've made the show possible for five years. So thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Max with Vanessa Gregorianis.
Sherry. I, thank you for your party. I had fun at your party. You had a good time? Yeah, it was a really good party. Um, yeah, I got uh, drunk like I was in my youth. I think everybody did. I said you had an open bar with stiff drinks for journalists. I said I said I said things I shouldn't have to <laughs> a lot too. of people. Me too. I haven't had that <laughs> I haven't had that feeling in a long time where I like woke up in the morning and I was just like I felt like an asshole, but I couldn't quite place why, you know? Journalists, you know, they can't get hired, but they can get drunk. <laughs> yeah, well, we did a good job. Um uh, well welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Max. The last time we talked was on a stage somewhere in a college I can't remember the name of in California. Me neither. And uh, go back and listen to that if you want the full Vanessa career experience. But we are back now because you have a book out. Not about celebrities, which is what everybody knows me as is the celebrity profiler. And I decided to take on a serious topic. Just a little serious. Yeah, pretty serious. (laughs) Pretty serious. Uh, College sexual assault. Controversial, serious. A lot of people have different ideas about how much it's happening, where it's happening, why it's happening. If it's happening, I don't know what else I can throw in there. I feel like this is a question you've gotten a lot, but I'm just going to ask because you brought up seriousness. You called the book Blurred Lines. Right. Not such a serious title. Kind of, I will, a, kind of a joke. I'll let you in on the secret that I wanted this book to be called Consent. Blurred Lines was thought to be more commercial which it is, since Robin Thicke already told us all about it. And, I mean, it works in a way because the subhead is rethinking sex, power, and consent on campus. So, you know, I made sure that we had that word rethinking so we understand that it we're rethinking the blurred lines. We're trying to figure out where, you know, what is the fair definition of consent. That's basically what the whole book is about. What is that like when you like have to argue with your book editor about a book title? Um, it's pretty weird. But I also come from the magazine world where I've never been able to write one headline myself. So, you know, I'm used to that part of the process being out of my hands. Yeah, you were just like, I don't love it, but that's your job. My job is Basically, to write the book. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I see a lot of my articles for the first time laid out in the magazine. Uh, why this book? Well, I wanted to write a book about sex and young women. I wanted to write an investigatory book. Uh, I wanted to write a book that dealt with, you know, pop culture and young people and the ways in which I see like generational change happening in terms of sexual mores. I was also just interested in sexual assault and abusive men and like where the line really is. I've had experiences, you know, with friends of mine who have dated abusive guys, and I've felt a lot of sadness and anger over my inability to express myself clearly with those people. And, you know, I became really interested in military sexual assault, and I thought I would write a book about that. And then I started to realize, you know, that that was maybe just a bridge too far from what I'm known for, which is kind of like just chronicling like, what's up at this moment? Oh, hey, here's a new social trend. Oh, hey, here's Taylor Swift or Nicki Minaj or Justin Bieber. Hey, Justin Bieber, what do you think about abortion? I mean, these are the things I'm known for, right? So when the college sexual assault issue began to, you know, really attract a lot of mainstream attention... I started to think about that. And then when I saw the way that women's blogs were reacting to it and taking like really a very hardline radical kind of feminist stance on it, like very much like the 70s or the 1990s in the way that they were talking about rape and like giving not an inch, I started to think like there's something 
really interesting here. The other reason is, is that I really needed to write a book. I've been a magazine writer for 20 years, and I've never um, made the leap. I think that's kind of why I was asking was like, if you were going to make the leap, uh, why this one? Like, you must have come close to writing books before. I had definitely come close to writing books before. And I definitely, you know, I thought a lot about writing a book about celebrity. And I'm really damn glad that I didn't because I realized it's just like an intellectual cul-de-sac and you can't get out of it. And there's just not that much to actually say. I think the thing that people tell you about books is really true, which is you're going to spend a couple of years of your life doing this. And if it doesn't interest you through it, I mean, you're already walking around with a black cloud over your head. If you're not into the subject and it doesn't have like a million nooks and crannies, which, by the way, sexual consent does, you'll never be able to cope with it. Did you have your mind made up about it when you started? Not at all. Because you had, you had done some reporting about the protests at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I had Emma Solkowitz. I put Emma Solkowitz, who's the mattress girl, quote unquote, from Columbia, on the cover of New York Magazine. And... No. In the course of doing that, I mean, when I first went to Columbia, I was like, this is the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Like, this is 1991 back in effect on Columbia's campus. Like, I feel like all these ideas that I was exposed to as a student at Wesleyan, all these ideas are now here again. And here are my my younger selves, these women who are, like, talking about this. I thought it was the coolest thing I ever saw. And... The more and more that we talked, and as that story was starting to close up, I started to look like more closely at the scenarios. And I started to say to myself, like, wow, this is a little more complicated than I thought. And not Emma's story, because Emma's story, I think, is a pretty cut and dry rape story, which is that they were in the middle of having like oral and vaginal sex. And then he escalated it to anal sex and she was kind of protesting and he just didn't stop. I mean, that's rape to me. You know, my my definition of rape is pretty broad, but there were still stories that I was hearing that made me a little uncomfortable. Like, you know, a girl saying, well, I invited this guy to sleep in my bed because we were studying late at night and he was a platonic friend and we were both asleep in my like twin bed and I woke up and he was groping me and I felt I had to take him to the dean because he's my rapist. And I was like, whoa, hold on a second. So at the same time, I do support the instinct to call a lot of behavior like that something. I don't know if I want to call it rape, but I want to call it violating. I do want to call it something. I just started to feel definitionally that I wasn't on the same page as a lot of them. When you identify something like that, like just there's shifting ground and there's some conventional wisdom that doesn't totally square for you how do you go about actually like reporting that nuance like how do you try and find some definitions that are inherently pretty well, difficult okay, to so find so this project of writing this book was hard as hell and 
part of it was that I've never written a book before. And it turns out that you can be a really good long form writer and you can have done it for a bunch of years and you can still have no goddamn idea how to write a book, which I learned, you know, definitely the hard way. Um, what, what what did you not anticipate? I didn't anticipate any of it. I mean, I just thought, okay, I'll find some characters. I'll make some points. It'll be interesting. It'll be super weird. Like, who's telling the truth? And then, you know, over and out. I mean, I don't even you know what was my like plan a long, was. Like a long article. I thought I would do it as a three-part thing. So, you know, there are books out there where there's three stories that are told and interwoven through the book, right? So, like, one story's true, this is like, you know, not even just true. This is a physically violent rape with no ambiguity whatsoever. And then there's one that's a false narrative, like the UVA story, right? And then one is ambiguous, and you're not sure which person is telling you what really happened objectively. And as I started to look into the stories, I started to realize, first of all, the UVA thing, where it's a complete fake story, that is by far the exception to the rule. In college. Remember, again, I'm writing about college, okay? Student-on-student assault in college. Hetero assault. Hetero assault, yes, Um, which we can get into as well. Um, But that was a choice. So the first kind of assault, the physically violent assault, is also not exactly an exception, but it is definitely not the rule in college either. And so... What exactly did I have here? Now I had three stories that I wasn't sure were so representative. And I started to realize as I read more and more three-story structure books, I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I even really want to go this way. Like, I want to try to figure out a way that I can put my hands around this entire topic versus just, like, splicing it out with six individuals. If I had this to do all over again, (laughs) I definitely would have done something like found some characters and made some interstitial chapters and written like 12 profiles instead of 12 chapters and just been like over and out. But would that have been able, I mean, part of it had to have been that this is like an incredibly difficult story to tell. It's a story that's like. Yeah, you can't stand on it. It's like quicksand. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't, can't really report the event. Yes. I mean, somebody once said to me, you know, writing about people's drug experiences is so boring. It's just like writing about people's sexual experiences. So boring. Yes, that's really true. Like, you know, here I am like trying to not only create sexual experiences, but sexual assault experiences, which, by the way, is incredibly depressing. And like the interviews that I did for this book were among the most difficult interviews I've ever done in my life. And I'm including Nicki Minaj in that like they were traumatized angry absolutely unable to hear anything during the interview that counteracted their point of view right so requiring sympathy at every single moment right and you never knew when you were about to say something wrong were you able to supply that sympathy definitely I mean I felt for a lot of people in this book and I particularly felt for young women who had been violated in some way, even if I maybe wouldn't semantically use rape. Like, I've been a 24-year-old woman. You know, I've been like a person whose body has been wanted. And I know how bad that feels. Like, I know how it feels to 
be sexually harassed at work, to walk down the street in the city and have guys always sneering at you. You know, when I was 24, I was really angry about a lot of that stuff. I was really angry about the way I felt used in sex, about the way I was harassed on the street. You know, my experience coming out of Wesleyan, moving to Manhattan, becoming a magazine writer, being expected to be like super dressed up and go to Paris review parties and like be always with the makeup and like perfect looking and like partying all night and, you know, waking up in the morning with my iced coffee and like running back to New York magazine. Like the way that I felt I had to be to make it in New York was very much connected to being sexually available, being attractive. And, you know, I don't want to say that I understand the trauma of rape victims because I actually really don't. But I do understand the anger of women about misogyny and misogyny that's particularly connected to, you know, sexuality. Hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly to give you a word from our sponsor, Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. People who listen to this show will remember I have a terrible back, which causes me many problems in life, including sleeping. The Casper mattress is got this supportive memory foam that really sinks right for me. If you think it might work for you, you should give it a try. They'll let you sleep on it 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up, refund you everything, free shipping returns in the U.S. and Canada. So as a listener to this show, I would like to offer you $50 towards the purchase of any Casper mattress. If you go to casper.com slash longform and put an offer code longform, again, that's 50 bucks towards any mattress at Casper. Terms and conditions apply. If you go to casper.com slash longform, put in the offer code longform, and you'll be supporting this show. Thanks, Casper. Support for today's show also comes from Squarespace. If you're ready to start a new business, perhaps a passion project, make it stand out with a site from Squarespace. I like to look at websites, actually, that I think are really cool. I'll like view source and look at the code. And often when I look under the hood, it's a Squarespace site, which should come as no surprise because they have beautiful templates that you can customize with just a few clicks of the mouse. They've got everything you need under the hood, uh, analytics, extensions. You never have to install, patch, or upgrade anything. They've got customer support if anything goes wrong. So if you've got a project that you want to make real, you need to take the hurdles out of the way, and a website is one of those hurdles. I encourage you to get rid of that hurdle with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial to start building it right now. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM. You'll save 10% off your website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM for 10% off. Thank you, Squarespace. You helped make this show possible. Here is Max back with Vanessa Gregoriadis. Do you feel like you understand that trauma better now? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I, I certainly interviewed a ton of people who had been raped and also like scientists and people who study this. And, um, you know, I went through 
some really traumatic experiences of my own when I was writing this book of people close to me dying. And I, you know, really never had had that before. Like I never, I had had a very, like death had never really touched my life. You can just tell me not to ask this, (laughs) but who died? Okay, well, so while I was writing this book, um, I not only was, first I broke my knee and then I got pregnant. So I was super, super sick and I threw up like for three months, right? And then um, the book was due and I, you know, I turned in the book and then I had the baby. And through all this time, I was not really spending a lot of time with my father because a lot was going on. And um, he was not feeling well and he was not feeling well and he was not feeling well and we didn't know what was wrong. And then about a month after I had the baby, he was diagnosed with an aneurysm in his leg. But these fucking moron doctors did not see that he had an enormous tumor next to the aneurysm. So his leg broke. And when his leg broke, they realized that they thought he had metastatic lung cancer because he had spots in his lungs. But he actually had bone cancer that had metastasized to his lungs. So he was diagnosed in the hospital when his leg broke, and he died four months later. And so my editor, who you know said that he was not going to, didn't like my title, was so awesome through this whole experience. And he, he really helped me, and he understood what was happening. And, you know, I worked. I did work through that time. I really tried to work. And I was breastfeeding in Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I was working on my computer. And I really tried, but I needed some help. So he did help me. And, you know, after my dad passed away, I just put those feelings in a box. And, like, two weeks later, I just started to work again. And I you know, took what was like an extremely rough draft. And within three months, I had finished the book. So I just really poured all of my energy into that. And then, um, you know, just when it felt like, okay, we finished the book, you know, we're working on it now. It's getting like laid out. And, you know, I'm just like crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's, you know, and I did really fact check this book with a fact checker who works at the Washington Post and has won more Pulitzers than any other person in the Washington Post newsroom. So while, you know, we were fact checking the book, I was like working and my friend started calling me. My best friend from LA started calling me and she kept leaving messages. And, you know, I work in the Brooklyn Writers Room, which is a place where you're not allowed to speak on the phone. So I kept seeing she's calling me. She's leaving messages and she knows We don't leave messages for each other. We just call. You're not there. Hang up. Okay, you can call me back, right? That's the way we do it. So I left the Brooklyn Writers Room, and I went outside, and, like, there were three, you know, like, musketeers, me and my best friend, Deb, and our other friend, Jen, and her fucking plane disappeared into the ocean with her and her two toddlers. And so it's been the most insane two years of my life. I have never really had anything bad happen to me before. You know, that's the truth. The truth is that 
you know, I led an incredibly charmed life basically till I started working on this book and just, you know, I do blame the book. But um, <laughs> um, I don't really know what to say. I mean, to this day, I can't believe those two people are gone. You know, at some point, I'm going to like actually have a nervous breakdown about it right now. You know, I'm trying to keep it together. Um, you know, it's it's already really hard to write a book and it's definitely hard. I mean, I don't know. I'm a workaholic. So in some ways, you know, I regret every minute I didn't spend with my dad that I spent working on the book after he got sick. But I also know that there were days when I didn't work on the book and I was losing my shit. So in some ways, you know, work has always been something for me where I can control it. I can make it happen. I mean, I'm. that's why most people are writers, because no matter what's going on in the world, you can sit down and you can think through something and you can feel a sense of control. I'm so sorry. Thanks. <laughs> I'm really, really sorry. Thanks. I appreciate that, Max. That seems like an almost impossible thing to do. To write a book when all of that's happening? Yeah, it's pretty impossible. And then to get your ass handed to you by the New York Times, by somebody who is just totally not comprehending what you're saying, is just batshit. Okay? And I will admit that I'm a bit on edge. Like, nobody could have gone through what I just went through and not have, you know, some, like, nerves that are just, just have been worked. Yeah. Um, plus, like, let's remember, this is a book about rape. Like, this is a book about, like, a pretty serious topic, even if it's not about me. Well, it was also a book that was, um, was a controversial thing that you were doing. Right. I mean, I'm a controversial writer, you know, like I've never shied away from controversy. I mean, I've only really courted it because, you know, I realized a lot earlier than a lot of other people who are involved in this whole depressing business that we clicks are the way to go. Right. Or eyeballs, as we used to call them, or readership. Um, right. You know, you I come out of a Tom Wolfe, like Hunter Thompson kind of tradition, like you don't you don't mince any words like you just go for the jugular that's what you do you go for the jugular and you say as many things that can stir people up as yeah. possible you, you like know? to stir shit up like you have always liked to stir shit up of course yeah what's the fun if you don't and do part it? of what you are stirring up with this book is like the feminist internet True, although the feminist internet has not really uh, acknowledged the book as much as you would expect partially because there are some ideas in it that I think just are not either not interesting to them or run contrary to what they need to say. Or, you know, the other reality is, you know what, there's so much bigger fish to fry right now. Like we have like a sexual assaulter in office like Betsy DeVos has just like blown up the campus like sexual assault court system. Like, like two weeks after your book came out, right? Bits. Yes. Like, I mean, she has ruined the lives of people who are genuine rape victims. Tell me if this sounds right. What I'm hearing is sort of like you, a couple of years ago, pitched this book that like you knew would be kind of controversial and stir some <laughs> shit up. But was it trying to get at an idea that you thought had more nuance than 
the conversation was allowing right, for. Right, exactly. So before, when I sold the book, right, I had just written the Emma Sokowitz story. And so this is what, like 20... 2014? Yeah, 2014. Right? I End feel like this is the thing that people don't get about book writing is that like you sell a book and yeah. then it doesn't come out for three years later and those three years might involve like a self-identified sexual assaulter to be president of the United States. Right, yeah. No, no, who could have foreseen it? <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, to me, this was going to be like the great feminist book about sexual assault that was going to ask some additional probing questions. It was always positioned as a book for kind of Gen X and boomers to understand what was happening on campus. It's never yeah. really been a book for 22-year-olds. Yeah, it's for like right? it's for their parents. It's for parents. And I'm old. And I'm like <laughs> kind of sound like an idiot trying to talk about young people. I totally get it. That's fine. I already knew that that was going to happen. But, you know, the assumption was that Hillary was going to win. There was going to be an amazing feminist moment, not just like a feminist blip right before apocalypse. And that my book would kind of fit into the stream of all of these books about, you know, this contemporary history of women taking over and how, you know, everything that was wrong has now been set right. So in some ways, like all these terrible things that happened. I mean, I was a bit late on the book. I guess you could say like that was a good thing because I would have had a book talking about the great feminist moment, which obviously was not happening. But um, okay, so let me let me just try and play this back to you, and then I do want to get to this book review that Michelle Goldberg wrote in the New York Times, 2014. You decide you're going to write this book. You sell it. Your charmed life comes to an end. <laughs> Horrible fucking things right. happen. Donald Trump is president. The sort of tone and era and moment in which it was written is now a very different tone. And then all of this like hard work of figuring out how to write a book and then adapt the book to this changing moment and these horrible fucking things. And then your book comes out and then a book review comes out in the New York Times, which is the thing that makes or breaks a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, then what happened? Okay. So basically what happened is Betsy DeVos, so it was clear as I was finishing the book that she was going to blow the campus court system to smithereens, which is really, you know, where the heat is here, even though lots of people are assaulted on campuses and none of them report jack shit to any Title IX office, right? That's the usual situation. But since Obama allowed these rules to happen, you know, these new kind of regulations around campus courts, there are some students who will go report to the campus court, right? So she just basically wants to cut off those systems at their knees. My contention is is that she doesn't want to deal with all these like weird questions of consent, And she wants to stop people from running to their deans with any sort of like little problem they may have. Oh, you little kids, go figure that out on your own, right? So I was, you know, writing about this furiously because my book had just come out a week before. And I'm like typing away, writing about it. I was in Boston. I had just done an interview um, on All Things Considered. I'd like gone back to the hotel. I'm about to do a book event in Cambridge at the Harvard Bookstore. And I'm like furiously Googling this and that about Betsy to put it in this story I'm writing. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a story by Michelle Goldberg. 
and it's about campus rape in the Times. What is this? Oh, that's cool. I love Michelle Goldberg. So I start to read it, and I'm like, oh, she's, she's talking about my book. And then I kept reading it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is the review. This is the review of my book. Because I had told my publisher, don't show me this review, because I have to go have book party plural, with people I know. And if it's really bad, and I knew all the reviews of this book were going to be bad, because I knew that people were going to come out and say, she didn't do this, and she didn't know this, and she didn't da-da-da-da, just the way people love to say about sexual assault all the time. You're wrong, and I'm right. That's part of why I hired the best fact checker I could. So I'm reading this thing, and I'm like, this is the review of my book. And then I just, like, kind of just was in shock. And I was just like, I can't believe that she's saying these things that are patently false. What did she say? She said, I didn't understand the significance of Obama's, you know, rules about sexual assault, and I didn't interview a certain set of activists. 19 pages in the book is spent on exactly that. She said that, I said, well, people don't use the word bitch in the 1990s as much as they do now. And what I was trying to say was that Wesleyan, it was a verboten word. Like young female students at Wesleyan, we called ourselves women then. You were not allowed to call anybody a girl at Wesleyan when I went there in the 1990s. We definitely did not call each other bitch. I am aware that there was a magazine called Bitch at that time. Um, It's in the book. And I have a line in there that says the reclamation of bitch began, you know, around this time. That's in the book. There are lines that say in the book. She's like, she doesn't know about that. So those were like kind of the little annoying things that were just completely not true. But the big, big problem was that she she has a line in there basically saying that I don't know about this important national rape statistic. Right. So she says, I can't believe that somebody could write an entire book about campus rape and not know this. Okay, Where did she get the statistic? She looked it up on a website and she looked it up on the website of RAIN, which is like the rape uh, incest, uh, you know, rape abuse incest national network, which is kind of like NAMBLA. Right. They don't run big epidemiological studies. They're an advocacy group. They're a secondary source. So she's like, I can't believe she doesn't know about rain. Why does she not know about this rain statistic? And I was like, do you want to look at the three pages in the actual book where I discuss your statistic under the correct name? So, you know, I was frantically trying to explain this. And somehow in my explaining, she convinced somebody to change that line to, I'm not sure how anybody could write an entire book about campus rape and not reckon with this. So that was the Wait, change. Wait, like got edited made. online while you were looking yeah, they, at it? Right. Well, they told me, okay, you're going to get a correction. I said, can I see the correction? No. Or whatever. Nobody wrote back to me, so there was no answer to that. Wait, help, help me understand. So you're sitting in this like hotel room in Boston. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That was 10 days later when the correction <laughs> happened. No, I'm sitting in this hotel room. I'm like, what the hell is going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, that's got to be a crazy moment. A, yes. Like, like, I called my publisher, and they were like, oh, you saw it. And I was like, 
yeah, I saw it. Were you guys going to tell me? And they were like, you said you didn't want to know about the review. And I was like, this is an emergency. Like, this isn't just like I, my feelings are hurt. This is like malfeasance. Like, something needs to happen right now. So, What'd you, know, you do? I made like 75 calls, you know? Like, I wrote up. First, I was just like, this is wrong. Then I was like, let me show you how this is wrong. And then I was like, let me show you really how this is wrong. And so I was in the middle of like a five city book tour and, you know, writing like these screeds at like three o'clock in the morning. I don't think I slept for a week, basically, is the truth. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I hadn't actually had this thought until right now. Like, so you have written for the New York Times. You've written for Vanity Fair. You've written for Rolling Stone. Like you've written for these huge places, and you were kind of like a shit starter, right? Like you—that's true. Self self admitted, very true. Shit starter. Yes, I am. Some a shit people starter. would like you would say things about people that you knew would start shit. They would be factually accurate, but you knew they would start. I'm shit. just like you, Max. I ask interesting questions, and that's how you get interesting answers. Yes. What I had not thought about until right now, as you were telling this story, was. This might be the first time that one of these big, like, journalistic institutions started shit with you. Like, <laughs> all, of a, all of a sudden, you didn't have no, 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 no. you didn't have the like platform and the megaphone. You were like someone on Twitter being like, "This shit was fucked up." <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. Although, I mean, Richard Johnson did like threaten to rape me in the pages of Page Six once when I called him emasculated. So, it is true that I was called a hirsute hack, and he said that the guys on page six would take me behind in an alley and show me what's what, but they didn't like a woman with a mustache. Fuck. So I did have that happen. I mean, I'm very um, knowledgeable about you know the ways of PR, crisis PR, attorneys, how big stories get put together. Like, I've written major stories on major scandals, like not only like Judith Regan and her downfall or the Dodgers and their divorce or the divorce of, you know, Chris and Tory Burch. I mean, these are stories that involve like, you know, 9 p.m. calls with people who are being paid $600 an hour to lie to you on the phone. So like I'm knowledgeable about all that and I'm knowledgeable about how you have to defend yourself. There was nothing else for me to do except defend myself because I didn't have somebody backing me. I did have some offers from different publications to talk to them and put the whole story out there. And I turned those down. Why? Like, because I work at the New York Times and I don't want this to be Vanessa versus the Times because it's not about the Times. It's about somebody who decided to misread the book. Like, that's my deeper psychological reading of what's going on is that it comes from the hot take tradition of the internet, which is like, I'm smart and you're not. I know this and you don't. You're wrong. I'm right. You know, but I'm sorry. Like, in no other part of the media are you allowed to call people out for wrong facts and not actually check that, right? Potentially even with the source. What if somebody had said to me, look, Michelle said you got all these facts wrong. And then I could say, okay, these are my, here's my rebuttal. I've got all this other stuff. I mean, I make my livelihood by being a journalist. A journalist is somebody who tries to be precise. 
Like, this is like a direct attack on my professional credibility. You know, I still think, like, I'm proud of my book. I think my book is really good. I think there's a lot of super interesting stuff in it. Like, it's a work of gonzo reportage of me running around to different campuses and as a Gen X mother of two pretending to be, you know, pretending in quotes because I tell people I'm a reporter, but, like, blending in with college students. Yeah, you're, like, passing as a kid. all sorts of stuff in there that is totally weird and totally new and breaks a lot of ground and is newsworthy. So like my attitude at this point is just like, all right, I'm just going to dump as many excerpts as I can because every time I put an excerpt out, people are super psyched about it. Yeah, like, I've seen a you ton. Know? What did that review and like everything that followed do for book sales? No, the book sales went down for sure. Oh, really? Of course. You know, the greater book buying public, the million or so people who read the Times, they're not like following this like Twitter war, you know, they have no they idea aren't? what's going on. I like to think the whole world is following this Twitter war. So the thing that you feared was kind of twofold, right? Like one is this book is threatened by a review like that. And also like your career is sort of threatened by a review like that. Right. Yeah. And the ugliest thing is that the whole point that she was trying to make was that she wanted me to talk about how more women, young women who are not enrolled in college, are victims of sexual assault than women who are enrolled of college. I don't understand why I was not allowed to use a frame and talk about the women that I wanted to talk about. You know, there's still something happening in college that is wrong. Like, there's something happening at residential colleges that has to do with the misogynistic structure of the campus um, in terms of frats having unsupervised drinking, the drinking being pushed off of campus, you know, like you can't have a keg in your dorm room. It has to be like with some like freaky dude who's 19 in a basement. Um, You know, the way that football stars are like huge celebrities at a lot of schools. Um, Do you regret I mean, you did, you picked this narrow focus, right? It was heterosexual sex on residential college campuses. Mm-hmm. Do you regret going that narrow? Do you wish I that you had broadened it no, out? No, I think that the residential college thing, I mean, I'm so sad that I can't really make any headway on this because the truth is that the entire design of a college campus needs to be blown up. Like these enormous like thousand person dorms that they're building at state universities in the Midwest. Like there's nothing worse for sexual assault than having a bunch of 18 year olds in a dorm like that who have no experience with drinking, don't know each other very well, have all these fucked up weird ideas about like how a man pushes to have sex, you know, no matter what, and are totally unsupervised and have no real academic interests and have a ton of leisure time. You know, like that is a bad situation for that. The hetero thing, I will say, I really do wish that I had been able to expand that because that would have been totally fascinating. Did you get a chance to talk to Michelle at all? No. No. I mean, I thought about it because if she had admitted what she had done wrong, you know, I probably would have been in a better position because she pushed as hard as she could to not get a correction. Right. But, you know, it, it's like, I mean, no, 
It didn't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could have made a bunch of different decisions, I guess. But it, it's hard to play something like that totally right. Yeah. Seems really hard. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Is the craziness over? I think so. I mean, I do love the New York Times. I definitely want to write for them. <laughs> I need to get people to talk about my book and not talk about corrections. And, you know, like I'm going to start writing articles again. Like, I mean, I still have like a mortgage to pay. I have other stuff I have to do. And, you know, like a friend said to me, I mean, you can't just think about this all the time because you know, you're drinking poison and hoping somebody else dies. Like, that just doesn't work. You have to let it go. It's your job and your mission when something is, like, really manifestly unfair. On the deepest level, it really is my job to let it go. Okay, I'm going to stop asking about it then. Okay, cool. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to ask you about one more potentially painful uh, topic. Your book came out when? September 5th? Correct. Since then, like, I don't know, four magazine editors have yes. stepped down, including Graydon Carter, who you've worked for, and the winners announced that they're going to sell the rest of Rolling Stone. Oh, my God. Like, you've been writing big-ticket, well-paid, glossy magazine stories for a long time. I know. Can you believe this? It's crazy. What does this feel like to you? Like oh my you're God. saying you're going to go back yes, and write articles. Like what what happens like, next an for article. you? article. One. One. Oh. Maybe I'll like write one. Um, No, this is the end. I mean, this is, I don't know, because it's been the end for a lot of people for a long time. And I've been on the Titanic and dancing. And, you know, now the ship's going under and my part is over. I definitely think that the thing that I do as my bread and butter writing these kinds of like big splashy cover stories to say nothing of like the investigative stuff that I've done like the Rolling Stone story I wrote about the highest ranking American in a Mexican drug gang or the unpacking of the you know quote-unquote eco-terrorists and how they were all caught in the Pacific Northwest the Britney Spears story which took you know months to follow her all over town and make like a big allegory about American culture. I mean, that's all dependent on ad dollars. That stuff is not the kind of stuff that ProPublica necessarily wants to do, right? Those are the kinds of stories that aren't going to find public funding. They're just stories that were awesome to read when you were on a train ride, you know, but now you can play Candy Crush. Like now you can look at photos with like everything's going to basically be like a deep caption, right? 120 words. But, you know, the real question since we're on the long form podcast is like, what is the future of long form? Like, is there a long form future? Right now, sitting here, seeing, like, all of these editors, my friends, you know, my mentors step down. I mean, this is not a joke. These people, particularly the editors-in-chief, they just can't stand the bloodletting anymore. They don't want to have to look half their staffs in the eyes and fire them. I really believe that this is, like, more than anything, that's why they're leaving. And... 
you know, makes me terribly sad because I have tons of friends who are editors who are really at loose ends now. You know, writers have almost fared a lot better in this system because even if they get paid pennies, they can still work. For editors, you know, it's really rough. What does it mean for you? Oh, my God, I have no idea. I mean, I think it means that, A, I have to concentrate on, like, the biggest story, which is if you don't do Trump, you're nowhere. I mean, people said to me before I put this book out, they were like, lower your expectations right now because anything that has come out in 2017 that is not connected to Trump and the destruction of the world as we know it is nowhere in terms of nonfiction. So certainly I can get in on that story. You know, I've lots of sources that other people don't have that I could milk. So I can get somewhere on that. But that's basically the question for somebody like me is like, okay, well, what do I do as a journalist from here? Do I just move forward by being on the Trumps and being on whatever the biggest story is and try to like claim my corner, even though there's 700 other rabid political journalists like clawing at it I mean that to me that's the the best path forward I can see right now you know I didn't work in New York for 20 years and not get to know any powerful people and it's not like powerful people have nothing to say about the Trumps does that sound like fun Uh, doing the Trumps jumping off the Titanic onto like the SS Trump I think it sounds like a brawl And it sounds like a brawl that you could, like, enjoyably throw a few punches in. But you're definitely going to have to be, like, wiped off the floor at the end because all of those people that I was talking about before who call you at 9 p.m. at night, they're going to be calling you about the Trumps, too. Well, at least least you like a brawl. I do like a brawl. (laughs) I do not mind a brawl. Let's put it that way. I I don't seek it, but I don't mind it. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Angela Velez. Our sponsors were Casper, Squarespace, and of course, as always, our friends at MailChimp. Thanks to them, and thanks to Vanessa Gregoriatis. Her book is called Blurred Lines. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.